Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect Workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press start in zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training, Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so very much, um, Dietmar, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Connect Education Workshop, Follicular Lymphoma Treatment Progress. And today's program is supported by Gilead and Pharmacyclics LLC and AbbVie Company and Janssen Biotech Inc. administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs LLC. And we want to thank them for their support of this program and actually for their support of many of our workshops. Now, um, on today's program, we have a lot, a lot of you on the call today, over 153 participants from all of the United States from both urban, rural, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants today from Australia, Austria, Canada, Denmark, Egypt, Malaysia, Poland, and the United Kingdom. So it's really a global call today. And we're delighted to have so many of you on the call today and from all different parts of the world and all over different parts of the United States. Now, before I introduce our first speaker, I would like to ask you all just a few questions um, really, um, we've been doing this because it really gives us a nice sense of, of really what you know before the program starts. Um, it'll help us to best tailor our programs in 2022 to best meet your needs. And for those of you who are live streaming the program, you'll be able to see the questions as I read the questions, and you'll also be able to rate your answers. So on a scale of one to five, with one the highest rating and five the lowest rating, please select your rating. I understand current treatment options for newly diagnosed follicular lymphoma. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. The next question is, I understand current treatment options for relapsed refractory follicular lymphoma. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, I understand new and emerging treatments for follicular lymphoma. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. I understand how to prevent and manage treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and quality of life concerns of follicular lymphoma. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And this will be the last question. I understand the role of clinical trials for the follicular lymphoma. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. I'd like to thank all of you who participated in these questions. It really makes a big difference for us as we plan future programs, so thank you so much. And now it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Peter Martin. Dr. Martin is Chief Lymphoma Program, Associate Professor of Medicine and Wild Cornell Medicine, Associate Attending Physician, York Presbyterian Hospital. And Dr. Martin will address overview of follicular lymphoma in the context of COVID-19 and its variants, treatment options for newly diagnosed, factors that may affect treatment planning, new and emerging treatments, the importance of communication in the context of COVID-19 and its variants with, the, with telehealth, telemedicine appointments. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Martin. Thank you so much, Dr. Mesner. It's a pleasure to be here. I uh, am going to focus on um, the initial management of follicular lymphoma, and I'll weave a little bit of information regarding COVID-19 in there. And uh, then uh, my friend and colleague, Dr. Jonathan Cohen, is going to discuss, I think, a lot more about what happens uh, when we're dealing with follicular lymphoma a little bit down the line. And uh, I suspect we'll have lots of questions regarding COVID-19. I'll try to address some of them, and I'm sure Jonathan will as well, but if there are questions, then we can take those later. I think... Um, when uh, when I meet somebody with a new diagnosis of follicular lymphoma, my uh, my initial approach is to try to learn as much as I can about the uh, lymphoma itself. That often has to do um, 
with understanding the kind of lymphoma. And even with follicular lymphoma, there are different subtypes, including different uh, grades and even different uh, variants of follicular lymphoma. Um, I also like to know uh, where it is, how much of it there is, so that I can have an understanding of uh, what to expect in the future. And then there are some things that you can't uh, glean from a microscope or from a scan, and that has to do with the behavior of the lymphoma. And sometimes it just takes a little while uh, observing the lymphoma to see how it's changing over time, and that can be uh, particularly helpful. And we uh, also like to learn as much as we can about the person who has the lymphoma. I can't emphasize how important that is. I'm not just speaking about their overall health, which you know is, is fairly uh, self-evident. We like to learn about other medical issues, heart disease, lung disease, kidney disease, liver disease, all of that kind of stuff. But also we need to spend a lot of time delving into um, what their goals are, what their, uh, where they are in life. You know, do they have young kids where they have certain obligations? Are they taking care of, are they the primary caregiver of somebody? Are they uh, working? Are they retired? Are they uh, keen to travel a lot, which um, maybe has an impact on what the treatment options are? And it used to be that those were the primary determinants that would help us decide what what we would offer somebody, the lymphoma-related factors and the patient-related factors. All of a sudden now we have um, new societal-related factors, specifically the COVID-19 pandemic, and uh, we're learning that that is also dynamic in terms of the prevalence of infection in a given location at a given time, also the different uh, variants that we see over time and their behaviors. And uh, so we have to make our treatments, our management decisions um, in the context of this greater sort of um, uh, pandemic, uh, keeping in mind that whatever we do has an impact beyond uh, just the lymphoma and can raise or lower somebody's probability of having uh, a significant COVID-19 illness. When when we've made all of those assessments, um, our initial approach is often to consider a period of observation. There are now uh, decades of data suggesting that this is not harmful, and uh, uh, oftentimes people will uh, go for many years without requiring any sort of treatment, and the lymphoma can remain fairly slow-growing or stable for a long time. Um, we can have more of a discussion about uh, why that might be appropriate or what to look for uh, over time that would make us want to start treatment. At some point, though, the vast majority of people with follicular lymphoma will eventually need some kind of treatment. Not everybody, but, but most people will uh, need treatment at some point. And when we um, look at the treatments that we're considering, we have to keep in mind what our goal is. Our goal is to minimize the impact of lymphoma on that person's life over a long life. Our other goal is to really minimize the impact of any treatment-related side effects on that person's life. And that's because most people with follicular lymphoma are going to live a normal lifespan. You know, if if an average 60-year-old in the United States is going to live into their mid-80s, the same is true of somebody with follicular lymphoma. And so we need to be very careful to, yes, treat the lymphoma and make sure that it's not causing them problems, but we also don't want to just simply replace lymphoma-related issues with treatment-related issues. And that can be um, something that takes a lot of consideration, some experience, and, and sometimes it takes a little while to get it uh, the right balance, frankly. So um, uh, once we start treatment, we're often uh, looking again at kind of how much lymphoma there is and where, where it is. And we make the treatment decisions based on, on all of those factors. One of the commonest early initial therapies is an immunotherapy called rituximab. 
think that's R-I-T-U-X, R-I-T-U-X-I-M-A-B. That MAB at the end of it stands for monoclonal antibody. It's a common suffix for a lot of drugs uh, in the biological class of drugs. Rituximab works in combination with our own immune system to fight against lymphoma cells. And it has been shown over and over again to improve outcomes of people with lymphoma. And oftentimes, it's sufficient by itself to uh, treat lymphoma, uh, treat follicular lymphoma very effectively. In fact, in December, at the latest uh, American Society of Hematology meeting, we saw a report of people who had received uh, rituximab for a relatively small amount of follicular lymphoma, and a decade later, almost a third of them were still uh, had still not required any additional therapy. So, um, when possible, uh, I always like to start with rituximab uh, because it's something that's very transient and can be uh, very effective. Sometimes we have to uh, increase the intensity of the therapy, and that's under circumstances where there's a lot of lymphoma or it's growing quickly. Under those circumstances, we um, will often add medications to rituximab. Those medications historically have been different chemotherapy regimens, and you may have heard of the names of some of them, including uh, CHOP or CVP or bendamustine, and there are different reasons to choose one over another. Uh, Also, now there is a, a drug called lenalidomide, It is not approved for initial use in follicular lymphoma, but it is occasionally used in combination with rituximab in that that setting. Too difficult to get into the reasons why one would choose one or another. Uh, That's really a a long discussion, Um, but know that there are a lot of options, and all of these options are very effective controlling follicular lymphoma pretty quickly and often for several years. After we uh, get somebody into a place where the lymphoma is not causing any more problems, we then often will turn our attention to whether we should continue some sort of maintenance therapy, in other words, some kind of lower-intensity treatment that will help to keep the lymphoma at bay. And there are multiple trials showing that rituximab or or another drug like rituximab or venetuzumab can do that. The... um, The societal issues that I mentioned earlier, however, are suddenly uh, at play when we're considering this because we know that these uh, biological drugs like rituximab and abinutuzumab can reduce the likelihood of responding to COVID-19 vaccines and can potentially increase the probability of somebody having a significant uh, COVID-19 related illness. And so while in the past maintenance therapy might have been more prevalent In the recent past, it's become a little bit less uh, common. This is all dynamic, and I'm sure we'll see changes with it in the future. Um, That's uh, an ongoing discussion, and there may be reasons why somebody would choose it, and there may be reasons why somebody would not choose it. That's always been true. Um, uh, Just uh, lastly, I wanted to discuss any any newer kinds of uh, treatments that are suddenly being considered for follicular lymphoma. And I think... Uh, really, uh, Dr. Cohen is going to describe really where all of the movement has been in follicular lymphoma over the past uh, 10 years, and it's almost all been drugs that have been approved for people with prior therapy. But know that there are many uh, ongoing and planned clinical trials to use many of these relatively newly approved drugs in earlier lines of uh, therapy, and so uh, we may see. Uh, treatment options moving forward. And that brings to uh, the forefront of discussion the role of clinical trials. Clinical trials in follicular lymphoma um, may be appropriate in many cases. They're not always appropriate for everybody. Nobody should ever feel coerced to participate in clinical research, but they often offer opportunities to have access to medications that might not otherwise be available. Lastly, I'll just discuss uh, briefly the role of telemedicine in uh, lymphoma care. This has also been something that's been quite dynamic over the past uh, two years. I would say that prior to uh, 2020, I had um, obviously 
called patients back to let them know how a recent test had gone or something like that, but had never really had an organized telemedicine clinic. I think things have changed pretty significantly early on in the pandemic. Uh, one of the main roles of telemedicine was uh, practice reduction. In other words, if hospitals were overwhelmed with COVID-19, it was safer for people to be at home. Uh, now, I think we're sort of finding different uses for telemedicine. Um, some of that may occasionally still go back to practice reduction when there are spikes of COVID-19 in the community. But a lot of it is, uh, I think, in order to provide an opportunity for better communication between providers and uh, people with lymphoma and their caregivers. Uh, in the past, oftentimes, people would be asked to wait for uh, many days, weeks, or months between um, testing and finding out the results. Now that can be done uh, very quickly and in a more personal way than in the past. If you're considering uh, telemedicine, I think, one, you have to ask your provider if that's something they do. Uh, two, you have to make sure that your setup at home is uh, okay to do that. Uh, not everyone is equally uh, savvy with technology, but I think it's become uh, easier and easier uh, to do that for the most part. Um, and then another uh, sort of interesting issue that has arisen is that um, during the initial part of the pandemic, uh, many states suspended uh, requirements that physicians hold uh, licenses in their state while participating in telemedicine. That is uh, all uh, being reversed now so that um, if you live in a state that is different than the state in which your provider uh, is practicing, your provider may or may not be permitted to uh, perform telemedicine without getting a, some sort of a medical license in the state in which you reside or are at least present in during the time of the telemedicine visit. And so that's led to some interesting uh, challenges. And then currently now, because of that licensed in New Jersey as well as Florida and working on getting other state licenses as well, but that may may or may not affect people who are you know living in border areas and uh, their physician may be in an, an adjacent state. I think I will stop there and leave any other issues for the question and answer period and turn it back to Dr. Mesner and Jonathan Cohen. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Martin. That was really outstanding and just a wonderful presentation. It really sets the stage for today's program and. Um, so I know, and I know there questions to you during the Q and A. So thank you so much. Um, and um, and now um, our next speaker is Dr. Jonathan Cohen. And Dr. Cohen is associate professor, Department of Hematology and Medical Oncology, Emory University School of Medicine, co-director lymphoma program, chair data and safety monitoring committee, Winship Cancer Institute at of Emory University. And Dr. Cohen will be addressing treatment options for relapsed refractory disease, clinical trial updates, how research contributes to treatment options, preventing and managing treatment side effects, symptoms, and discomfort, guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, and discussion of open notes, and tips to improve communication with the healthcare team, including key questions to ask about quality of life concerns. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Cullen. Great. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Messner. And um, it's always great to be with um, Dr. Martin, uh, uh, a person that I likewise consider a friend and who I look up to uh, greatly. Uh, so I uh, will spend the next couple of minutes uh, discussing uh, some general thoughts about treatment options for patients that have relapsed or refractory uh, disease. Uh, as well as some clinical trial updates, some discussions of toxicity, uh, and then uh, finish up with some uh, suggestions for ways to optimize communication with uh, your care team. Uh, so the first thing to bring up is, is to piggyback on a point that Dr. Martin uh, mentioned before, which is that follicular lymphoma uh, really in many ways is a chronic disease. And so when I see patients for the first time, one of the things that I uh, like to help them understand is that more likely than not, um, even after their initial therapy, uh, they probably will uh, have to go on some additional therapy down the road. Um, and that this is really a disease that will be a part of my, uh, my patient's life 
uh, forever, but that as Dr. Martin mentioned, our hope is and our expectation is that that life is going to be um, a long life and, and, and will not be significantly impacted uh, by, uh, by the disease. And that's really what our goal is. And just like Dr. Martin mentioned, uh, one of the first things that we want to do when we evaluate a patient with newly diagnosed follicular lymphoma is to get a good sense of what's going on with the disease, where it is in the body, how much of it is in the body, uh, and then pair that with what's going on with the patient and, and other medical conditions and other life uh, events and li uh, life activities. Uh, the same things hold true for patients uh, with relapsed or refractory disease. And when we say relapsed or refractory disease, what we mean is uh, the, uh, a situation where the lymphoma has, got, has been treated uh, and then has come back. Uh, and so when that happens, uh, there's a number of things that we take into account. Um, and so, uh, as I mentioned, there's sort of the disease characteristics, the patient's characteristics. Um, there are some other things that um, are specific to patients uh, with relapsed or refractory disease, and these include uh, things like the time to, the re to relapse. So I may think about a patient whose disease comes back in a year differently than I might think about a patient whose disease comes back in 10 years. Um, and there's different things that we may do um, based on some of that information. Uh, in addition, it's always important when there is concern that somebody's disease has come back that you make sure that you, that you know uh, what you're treating. And sometimes uh, a follicular lymphoma can um, transform into a more aggressive form of lymphoma uh, or, um, as Dr. Martin mentioned, there are different grades, and it may have a, uh, the grade uh, at the time of relapse might be a little bit different. Uh, and these are all things that it's important to know because they can inform the way that you might think about uh, treating um, treating that disease. And then I think it, uh, as, as we talked about before, I think it's very important to discuss with a patient what's going on in their life. So again, do they have young kids? Do they travel? Do they um, uh, do they live in an area where uh, it may be difficult to get back and forth to an infusion center, for example? And so these are all things that are really uh, important to take into consideration because, uh, as we mentioned, you know, the expectation is that uh, our patient is going to uh, live a long time and do very well. And so we want to make sure that we are aligning um, the therapies that we choose with uh, the um, goals of that patient. Now, there are a couple of options, and so uh, I think it's important that I, that I start out by saying that no two patients with follicular lymphoma have the exact same situation. And so there are some instances where we may choose one option over another, um, and I would encourage each of you to discuss these uh, in detail with your individual physician based on what's going on in your particular case. But all things being equal, uh, I would say many patients that have relapse or refractory disease will receive one of the available oral agents. And these are oral therapies uh, that target specific aspects um, of a patient's lymphoma uh, to help uh, control it. And so we heard before about uh, the drug lenalidomide. Uh, this is a, an oral therapy that helps to sort of augment or, or uh, modulate the, the, uh, the immune system. Uh, and this is a uh, therapy that is um, commonly used in patients with relapsed or refractory disease uh, and often is administered in combination with rituximab, uh, which we just heard about before. Uh, in addition, there are a class of therapies called the PI3 kinase inhibitors, uh, which are sometimes used in this setting, uh, as well as a drug called tazemetostat. And, and, and again, the, it's not so important um, during this discussion to differentiate amongst all of these other than to say that they've all been shown to be effective in patients with uh, relapsed or refractory follicular lymphoma, uh, and there are various reasons that you may choose one option over another. In some cases, we think about doing more traditional chemotherapy, and so Dr. Martin mentioned that, in, that um, some patients uh, may receive rituximab by itself uh, early, uh, as their initial therapy, and it may be that when their disease comes back, that uh, combining rituximab with chemotherapy may be the most appropriate option for them. And then uh, in, in recent years, uh, there have been um, some newer approaches, including uh, different forms of immunotherapy one of which is something called CAR-T, uh, which uh, is where we engineer a patient's T cells uh, to attack their own uh, cancer. Uh, this has been shown to be very effective in follicular lymphoma. 
Uh, it can be uh, toxic, and it's a therapy that commonly has to be administered in the hospital, and so it's not necessarily for everybody, uh, but it's certainly a consideration, uh, especially in patients uh, where the disease might have come back a little bit earlier than others or where it might be behaving a little bit more aggressively. And then there's also other um, interventions, including something called a stem cell transplant, uh, which, again, is not typically part of the treatment plan for most patients, uh, but uh, can be effective in patients, uh, again, where there might have been uh, uh, multiple relapses um, or where the disease just may be responding in a way that's different than what we might have expected. Um, sometimes a more uh, aggressive approach like a transplant is, is appropriate. Again, the key is to have a, an in-depth conversation with your doctor uh, to uh, make sure that you are identifying the most appropriate treatment option for you. And many patients will ultimately receive a couple of these different therapies over the course of their uh, lifetime. Now, as we, as Dr. Martin and I both have mentioned, there's a number of good therapy options available, um, but none of these options uh, 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 are approved without uh, going through a rigorous process of clinical trials. And so I would encourage each of you uh, to discuss with your physician whether or not a clinical trial may be appropriate for you. Uh, sometimes people hear about clinical trials and they think that they're sort of being experimented on, or they think that uh, this is just something that we're just trying um, just to try it or uh, that we don't really know what to expect. Uh, but the truth is that clinical trials are very closely observed. They're very closely regulated uh, by both uh, 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 um, bodies at the institution level. So at Emory, for example, we have something called an institutional review board and a data safety monitoring committee uh, that are uh, uh, tasked with making sure that patients are managed safely um, if they are on a clinical trial, and then also the FDA and other national regulatory bodies keep a very close eye on conduct of studies. And so it's important to recognize that if you go onto a trial, that in addition to your doctor who's going to be taking care of you, there are a number of other people that will be involved with making sure that everything goes safely and appropriately. And it's also important to remember that not all clinical trials are the same. So some studies uh, are, are specifically designed for patients with newly diagnosed disease, uh, whereas others might be designed for patients whose disease has relapsed a couple of times, and that may impact the type of therapy that we may choose. And so, again, I, just, uh, I would encourage you to keep in mind that not all clinical trials are the same, and as Dr. Martin mentioned, this is often a way to have access to very promising new therapies that may not otherwise be available. Now, we've talked a lot about treatment options and the fact that uh, survival, fortunately, for follicular lymphoma uh, tends to be quite long and tends to be very comparable to what uh, a patient might expect, um, even if they didn't have lymphoma. Uh, but it is important to recognize that uh, just because a patient lives a long time, that doesn't mean that they might, that, that uh, preserving that quality of life is not important. Um, and so it, it's important to recognize that any therapy that we may offer, although it might be very effective, can have side effects. And so I would encourage each of you, before you start on a new treatment, to try to get a sense of what are the side effects that we normally see with this particular therapy. Every agent that's approved by the Food and Drug Administration comes with something called a package insert, which lists all of the different um, and prescribing guidelines, which lists all of the different side effects that have been seen. But I would encourage you to actually speak with your doctor about this because anytime any of us look at one of those long lists of side effects, it can be very daunting and unnerving. Uh, but your doctor should be able to give you a, a good sense of what other patients that are receiving that therapy are, are experiencing. What, what, what has their experience been? Uh, in addition, if you have access to one, I would um, talk with a pharmacist. Uh, so we have uh, pharmacy specialists at our institution, for example, that focus only on patients with lymphoma. And so they are a wealth of knowledge uh, with regards to uh, what to expect. And then once you start therapy, it's important to report symptoms. Sometimes people are afraid to report symptoms because they don't want to be taken off the medicine or they don't want the dose to be reduced or they don't want to have to be delayed. Uh, but the truth is if, if you don't report symptoms and we don't know about it, sometimes patients can end up developing more serious complications uh, that um, could have otherwise been avoided, and, and then maybe they do have to stop therapy, whereas before we could have potentially, you know, introduced a new medication or a new um, supportive care approach. So please do report symptoms to your team, and it's important to work with your treatment team as you're, um, as you're uh, working through therapies. This is the best way to make sure 
that any of your symptoms are being addressed, uh, and also to identify potential red flag symptoms that would require us to make an adjustment. Uh, because uh, the last thing any of us want is for somebody's disease to go into remission, but then but to exchange that for some sort of lifelong complication or side effect that could have been avoided. Now, in the last couple of minutes, I'll highlight uh, some of my uh, my advice for sort of the current era of of of, of oncology and of, of lymphoma care, and this specifically re relates to um, preparing for telemed telemedicine or telehealth activities, as well as uh, the Open Notes uh, uh, program. And so, as Dr. Martin mentioned, we are now using telemedicine much more than we ever did in the past. And as he pointed out, I found this to be incredibly valuable, especially practicing in Georgia. Uh, we have some patients that live in Atlanta near, near us, but there's others that live um, several hours away. And to have them come all the way up to Emory uh, for a discussion can be quite um, expensive time-consuming and so forth. And so it's not uncommon that I might see a patient in consult, uh, recommend some evaluations, and then do a telemedicine visit as a follow-up to go over those uh, results. And so before the telemedicine visit, it's very important that you make sure that you're okay with the technology, that you practice it, that you know where you're going to do the visit, who's going to be a part of it. One of the nice things about telemedicine is that you can have other people call in as well. So if you have a relative or caregiver who can't physically be with you but who can call in, um, I would. Uh, it, it certainly is, is, is okay to include them. And then the last thing I would say about telemedicine is that if you aren't comfortable with the technology or you're not comfortable that you'll have a good connection, it's okay to decline. To decline. So just because you're offered that opportunity doesn't mean that you have to, to do that. All of us are still very happy to see you in clinic. And so it's okay to say that you're more comfortable um, uh, doing a different approach. Uh, and then finally, just a word about open notes. So many of you may be aware that uh, regulations have changed such that uh, physician notes, test results, pathology reports, and uh, laboratories and so forth often show up on your portal, often are accessible to you um, before you might have a chance to go over this with your physician. And I found this to be really um, a positive and a negative. So the positive is that patients have the opportunity to review their results. Uh, they don't necessarily have to wait those extra couple of days until their appointment to, to go over the results. Uh, and especially if it's something that's fairly straightforward, uh, they can uh, understand it and prepare questions in order to be ready for the visit. On the other hand, sometimes patients will review something and find it to be very anxiety provoking either because it is bad news, and it is something that is going to be problematic, or sometimes it's because they don't necessarily understand the report. And that happens not infrequently, where somebody will come in and will have been up all night the night before, and it turns out that their scan actually looks quite good, and that what was being referred to was just something that was normal. And so I would encourage each of you uh, to decide for yourselves whether it's appropriate or whether it's right for you to review your results ahead of time. That's not something that's required. Uh, and um, if you find that it's going to only add to the level of stress, uh, then it may not be the best option for you. Uh, but if you are going to review it, I would uh, wait until you have a chance to talk with your physician before getting too concerned about the results. I think it's a good opportunity to, to, to develop some questions, uh, but understand that sometimes there's things that are re re reported that may or may not apply to you or may, not, or may or may not be problematic. And then my last point would be, um, and this is something that sometimes happens with my patients, is don't interpret the fact that you haven't heard from your provider to be a sign of good news or bad news or, or to have any sort of meaning. It may just be that the provider is away that day or is in clinic or is in, rounding in the hospital. Uh, and so uh, uh, that just because something shows up on your portal and, and you may not hear from your team doesn't necessarily mean that there is a uh, a, a, a meaning behind that. Sometimes it's just a matter of the, your, your provider having a chance to review their box and make sure that they have and that they can address everything. And so just to finish up, just some, some overall thoughts regarding uh, communication with your team and how to make the most of your visits and, your, and, and the team. Uh, it is always good to ask questions and to prepare a list ahead of time. Sometimes people will come in with a typed list of questions and the first thing they'll say is, oh, I'm really sorry, but I have these questions. And the truth is, those are often the most effective visits because 
the patient has had a chance to think about what, what's going on, to ask questions, and then we make sure that we don't forget anything. In addition, it's very important that you are honest with yourself, with your family, and with your team. So if you're having a side effect, if you're uncomfortable with a plan, if you are comfortable uh, with the general direction that your care is going, it's okay to say, I'm not sure if I really want to do this very aggressive treatment right now, or I'm not sure that I have the bandwidth to come to clinic twice a week and so forth. So uh, you want to make sure that you're honest with everyone so that you can get the most out of your, um, out of your experience. And then I would also encourage you uh, to be respectful of all of the members of your team. I sometimes have patients that come and might uh, be, be evaluated by a different member of my team, like a nurse practitioner or PA or the pharmacist. Uh, and I think it's really important to remember that those um, professionals um, are incredibly bright, incredibly hardworking, and incredibly knowledgeable. And, and in fact, when you're dealing sometimes with day-to-day -day side effects of, of medication um, or day-to-day -day supportive care uh, maneuvers, often it's the pharmacist or the NP or PA who are much more familiar with some of those therapies than I might be. You know, I'm obviously there to help provide guidance for um, treatment decisions and, and, and so forth. Uh, but I rely upon other members of my team to provide some of that expert care that I'm not always quite as um, as good at just because of their level of expertise. So I would encourage you to um, utilize all the resources of the team um, to make sure that you get the most out of your experience. So I will um, stop at that point um, and uh, look forward to answering any questions that you may have. And, and thanks again for having me today. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Cohen. That was outstanding. Uh, just a wonderful presentation. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. And um, I am just going to say a few words about the services that you can access from cancer care, including practical and psychosocial support to cope with follicular lymphoma. So um, cancer care is a national organization, and we provide help to people with all types of cancers, including follicular lymphoma. And so um, how do you access help from cancer care? Well, you may call our HOPE line, um, and there's an 800 number that you can contact. And you'll, after today's program, you'll be receiving a SurveyMonkey probably tomorrow. And in that SurveyMonkey will be all the resources we mentioned during the program today and things that we think would be useful to you to have that will give you all of this information as well. Um, so the HOPE line is um, an 800 number that you can call from anywhere in the United States or um, and actually, um, actually parts of Canada as well. And um, you um, will actually speak with an oncology social worker. We have about 45 oncology social workers, and they're here to answer your questions and concerns. So that will come up um, for you, um, of course. Um, any question or concern you may have, you can address with the, with the social worker. We'll also go over with you all the services that we provide. So what are those services? Mm -hmm. So we do offer um, practical and financial assistance. Um, and I know that's very important to everybody on this call today. There are lots of resources, um, and many of you require um, and may want to have some financial and practical assistance. We also offer case management, and what does that mean? So there may be services we don't offer, like issues around food insecurity, money for food, or housing, or um, any kind of housing costs you may have, or electric bills that are outstanding. And so our case management team will actually, um, you'll be assigned to it. I want to uh, the staff and that team, and they will virtually take you to resources to help you and be sure that you get your needs met and, and work with you until those needs are met. And that's a very nice service. We also offer online support groups, and many people like the online support groups because they don't happen in real time like today's program, so you can post any time of the day or night, and the oncology social workers do um, moderate those groups, and so um, that's a great way to actually get help from cancer care. Um, in addition, we do offer um, these workshops, and we do offer publications as well. Now, with that being said, we are now going to, um, I'm just going to ask you a few questions, and then we're going to go on to um, questions for the Q&A for our speakers. So if you just bear with me for just a moment, I'm going to ask you just a few questions, and then we'll... Um, and for those of you who are live streaming, you'll be able to see the questions and you'll be able to hear me, of course, um, reading the questions and you'll be able to rate the questions. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of current treatment options for newly diagnosed follicular lymphoma. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, 
as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of current treatment options for relapsed refractory follicular lymphoma. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And the next question is, as a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of new and emerging treatments for follicular lymphoma. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And now just two questions left. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of how to work with the healthcare team to use their tips and suggestions to prevent and manage treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and quality of life concerns of follicular lymphoma. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. And then this will be the last question. As a result of what I learned in this workshop, I have greater confidence in my knowledge of the importance of participating in clinical trials for follicular lymphoma. One is the highest rating and five the lowest rating. I'd like to thank you all for participating in these questions. And now um, we're going to um, have a Q&A session with our speakers. I'm going to ask Dee Tamara to bring all of our speakers on board. And um, she will explain to you how to queue up for online questions. And we'll take as many of your questions as possible. Uh, Dee Tamara. And thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star. Then the number one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the bound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. We have a question in front of our online participants. Um, so, and this will be uh, for Dr. Martin. If a patient has had three doses of Pfizer and two half doses of Uvushield, when should they time the fourth dose of Pfizer and next full dose of Uvushield? Okay, I think I got that uh, sequencing. The, um, the, I believe that the CDC has now, for people who are immune compromised, there are a variety of different definitions around that, but has recommended for people who are immune compromised at high risk of a severe COVID-19 infection, has recommended a fourth dose of the vaccine. Um, and if that's similar to the third dose, then that would be recommended at least five months after the third dose, which is recommended at least five months after the second dose. Um, the uh, Evusheld, which is a monoclonal antibody, uh, is meant to be given prophylactically or preventatively to prevent severe COVID-19 infection. Um, when that's given, it's unlikely that somebody would respond very well to an infection, to a vaccine immediately after that. Uh, probably also in the uh, six month time frame. So if you're considering a vaccine after getting the completed dose of Evisheld, uh, I think that the current recommendation is to wait six months, although that may, that may change if more evidence becomes available. The one thing that the uh, questioner asks, which I'll point out, is that they mentioned two doses of Evisheld. This is because the initial Evisheld authorization was for one specific dose. It was later learned that the um, that that dose was unlikely to be sufficient to cover the Omicron variant and now the VA2 subvariant of Omicron, and so uh, an additional dose was recommended for people who got the initial lower dose. For people who have received Evisheld recently, they should be receiving a higher dose and they would only need uh, one uh, one dose. It's two injections, but one, one dose. Excellent. Thank you, thank you so much. That's, uh, I know that question comes up a lot, so I appreciate your um, responding to that. Um, so um, the next question from Dr. Cohen, how often do relapses generally occur? Uh, so, good question. Everybody is is different. I think some of this depends on um, what's going on with um, with that individual patient. But what I what I tell people, and I think Dr. Martin alluded to this to this as well, uh, is that in most cases, uh, patients will experience a relapse uh, during their during their lifetime. Uh, and so I uh, t I like to tell people to sort of be prepared for this, and if that does happen, 
It's obviously uh, upsetting when it happens, but fortunately we have a lot of uh, many therapies uh, to offer in that in that situation. And so, again, I I I think the best way to think about this is to think of this as as a, as a chronic disease that is going to at least be part of of your life, part of your experience moving forward, but that is, that it can be controlled, that, that uh, we have a lot of success uh, controlling. Um, but I would say uh, the overwhelming majority of patients uh, will uh, experience a relapse at some point, uh, and uh, there, are, uh, uh, at that time, will be a number of options available to, to manage the disease. Excellent. Thank you. And um, for Dr. Martin, what influence does the Epstein-Barr virus play in follicular lymphoma? Mm. The Epstein-Barr virus is a virus that um, can infect uh, certain cells in the body, in particular uh, lymphocytes, and uh, in particular B lymphocytes, or the cells that um, can become B-cell non-Hodgkin's lymphomas in some cases, the EBV virus can uh, be part of transforming a cell from a normal cell into a cancer cell. And there are certain lymphomas where that is uh, clearly the case, including uh, Burkitt lymphoma, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, Hodgkin lymphoma, some T-cell lymphomas. Uh, EBV is not typically associated with... Um, uh, follicular lymphoma. Um, I suppose that there are some uh, cases where that's occurred, but it's not one of the typical scenarios that uh, results in development of uh, follicular lymphoma. Excellent. Thank you. And um, for Dr. Cohen, do you see follicular lymphoma in occurring in younger patients? Uh, uh, great question. So follic we often think of follicular lymphoma as being a disease of uh, sort of middle-aged patients, uh, so often people in their 60s. Um, but we do occasionally see it occurring in, in younger people. Uh, and I, I've had some patients in their 20s and 30s that have developed uh, follicular lymphoma. Uh, and when that happens, uh, certainly uh, it, it, it may or may not impact some of the therapy options and the approach that you take, um, re, you know, recognizing that a person who is 30 um, may be expected to live another 50 to 60 years, whereas somebody who is 60 um, may not have that same life expectancy. And so, uh, so we do occasionally see that. Uh, there also is a rare uh, pediatric subtype of follicular lymphoma uh, that tends to be managed in a different fashion and behave a little bit differently. But occasionally, um, you'll have I'll have a patient who is diagnosed as a teenager or 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 very young adult who um, actually has that variant, uh, which uh, and that diagnosis is typically made by a pathologist uh, because there can be some some differences. Um, but but to answer your question, yes, we do occasionally see this in younger adults um, in their 30s and 40s and 50s, um, but more commonly, um, patients are in their 60s. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you so much. Great questions. Great answers to all of you. These are terrific. Um, um, a question for Dr. Martin. Um, how is a scalp extrandal follicular lymphoma manifestation managed while in a watch and wait mode without B symptoms? Can can you repeat the first part of that yes. question? I'm not sure. How is a scalp extrandal, E-X-T-R-A-N-D-A-L, follicular lymphoma manifestation managed while in a watch and wait mode without B symptoms? Oh, I think I think that okay. I think the question is how is an extranodal, probably extranodal, follicular uh, lymphoma of the scalp? It's of the scalp specifically. Yeah. That would make sense. They didn't write that, but yes, that would probably make more sense. Okay. Yes, thank you. Um, yeah, follicular lymphoma can, uh, you know, we call it lymphoma because it's typically a, a cancer of the lymphatic system, i.e. the lymph nodes and spleen and bone marrow, but it's fundamentally a, a blood disorder and can happen anywhere there's blood. Uh, additionally, we have immune system tissue spread out throughout our whole body, especially in any 
areas where inside world meets outside world. So there's a lot of immune system in our skin and GI tract, for example. And so um, we do see follicular lymphoma happening in those barrier tissues. There are gastrointestinal follicular lymphomas, and there is a form of follicular lymphoma called cutaneous uh, follicular lymphoma, which is uh, notoriously boring, and boring is typically a good thing in my mind. Um, and it has this sort of tropism or preference to exist in the skin. Uh, if it's if it's localized in one sole place, sometimes we will um, excise it if it's very small or radiate it if it's a little bit bigger. Sometimes if it's really, really tiny, you can even just inject it with local steroids or something. Oftentimes, these um, cutaneous follicular lymphomas will come back. When they come back, it's almost always, again, uh, localized in the skin. Um, and then you, you go through the same sort of process that we discussed earlier about figuring out whether it's likely to cause problems and trying to develop a, a management approach that is sort of uh, balanced based on what, what they may experience. The scalp is an interesting place. It's, you know, fortunately, it's not a big area of our body, but we do sometimes see lymphomas happening there. And, uh, you know, it's, I don't know that it's necessarily any different than any other area with the sole exception that um, radiation to the scalp, although it can be very effective at treating follicular lymphoma, can also sometimes cause some uh, local hair loss. So if it's in a, a very well-concealed part of the scalp, I think that radiation is appropriate. If it's you know somewhere that's really apparent, like the front of the scalp or something, then I'm not sure that uh, radiation uh, would be my first choice. Uh, scalp uh, scalps tend to heal really well, so if it's something that's really really tiny, you could excise it and probably have just the tiniest of all scars. If it's bigger, I probably would not do that. And then you know if, if local therapy isn't a, a, a possibility then you go back to asking the questions of whether it should just be observed for a while or whether we should be treating it with uh, systemic therapy. And then we have all of those options that we've discussed. Thank you. Thank you. Um, that's a unique question. We haven't had that question before in our programs, actually. So thank you. Thanks for the, as a person asking the question. And thank you, Dr. Um, Martin, for addressing it so thoughtfully. And um, a question for Dr. Um, Cohen. Please define refractory lymphoma. And I know you've discussed it, but if you could say a bit more about it. Uh, sure. So, um, so refractory lymphoma, uh, sort of in the in the strict sense of the word, refers to uh, lymphoma that either doesn't doesn't respond optimally to to treatment, um, or often um, will include um, a, a disease that that comes back pretty quickly. Um, so sometimes we'll use for, you know, use a cutoff of six months, for example. So if a patient's disease um, comes back within six months of their treatment, um, we often think of that um, as being refractory. And, and, and primarily that just refers to, again, disease that doesn't really respond or doesn't go away the way you might expect um, disease to. I would just, excuse me, expect the lymphoma to, um, to the particular therapies that you use. Uh, historically, uh, patients who experienced refractory lymphoma um, tended to have disease diseases that behaved a little bit more aggressively, um, and, and the prognosis hasn't always been um, a, a, as good in that setting. Uh, fortunately, in the current era, with all the different new therapies that we have, uh, there are a number of ways that we can attack um, refractory lymphoma um, and uh, very effectively. And so this is where sometimes we think about some of the newer immunotherapies or cellular therapies like CAR-T, um, some of those oral agents that I mentioned uh, may be very effective in patients uh, that whose disease didn't necessarily respond as well to more conventional chemotherapy. Uh, and so when I see a patient who has refractory lymphoma, um, it often makes me think that I need to look sort of at an alternative approach to that patient's disease beyond sort of more traditional chemotherapy. 
Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, and question now for Dr. Martin. Can lower extremity edema result from lymphoma? Yeah, it, it can. Um, blood runs from our heart through our arteries uh, out away from our uh, the middle of our body into our extremities, like our legs, for example. And our arteries are very muscular vessels that are difficult to compress. I mean, you know this when you take your pulse, you push on it, and you can still push pretty hard and feel the pulse. The blood then returns to our heart through veins and lymphatic vessels, uh, which are very thin-walled and can be compressed very easily. So when there are lymph nodes that are enlarged in the pelvis or the groin or the back of the abdomen, those lymph nodes can block or push, put pressure on those veins and lymphatic vessels that reduces the flow of uh, blood back through those uh, thin-walled vessels, the veins and lymphatic channels. When that happens, um, some of the fluid kind of leaks out and um, ends up in the lower extremities. When we want to manage those, we have a few options. One is obviously to treat the lymphoma, and the sooner we do that, the, the better. Uh, other things that we can do include elevating the legs to improve you know, the flow, basically gravity, bringing uh, blood out of the legs, and also some compression, compression stockings or wrapping the legs can, can help us fundamentally. Uh, the only issue that will help that to resolve is shrinking the lymphoma. Sometimes even after we have totally shrunk the lymphoma, the edema will remain an issue, and that's if, the, if it's been so chronic that the valves in the veins have been uh, damaged by chronic uh, expansion of the veins, and uh, then edema becomes more of a long-term issue that we have to work on managing using those other uh, strategies that I, I mentioned. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and this is a question. This will be our last question for Dr. Cohen. I'm in, I've been in remission from stage 3B um, follicular lymphoma for 11 years and in excellent health. I was treated with RCHOP. I'm 60 and considering to get Zostavax for shingles. Are there any concerns or risks for taking a live virus like Zostavax? Uh, so, um, first of all, that's wonderful news that. Um, that uh, that you've done so so well, and and I think that's um, illustrative of the fact that although uh, we generally have a sense of what to expect for for patients with follicular lymphoma, you can see that um, there's a wide range of patient experiences, and um, absolutely, even though we we often predict that a patient may ultimately relapse, that uh, I I know uh, Peter does as well. I have plenty of people in my clinic that are 10 or 11 years out and, and haven't, so that's wonderful news. Uh, as far as getting vaccines, my general, not, I, I guess the first thing I would say is it's important to speak with your doctor uh, because there may be other components of your care or of your case that may not be apparent just from this uh, discussion. Um, but in general, uh, once a patient has been off of uh, monoclonal antibody therapy like rituximab uh, for, for two years, I tend to be comfortable with them getting any vaccine that they may want to get. So whether that would be um, the, the, a live vi uh, vaccine for shingles or if they're going to be traveling and need a vaccine, a specialized vaccine for travel. Um, and so I think that certainly is appropriate. Um, now, you may be aware that there is a, an alternative shingles vaccine called Shingrix, which is not a live virus. Uh, and so that is typically what my patients are getting uh, but if, if Zostavax is, is available where you are, uh, given sort of your current situation and as far out as you are from receiving treatment, um, I think it would certainly be safe and appropriate to go ahead and get that um, uh, vaccination. And, and, and whether you get that or, or the Shingrix, I think getting uh, vaccinated against shingles is certainly appropriate. Excellent. Thank you. I want to thank all of our speakers. You've been really phenomenal. I want to thank our participants also asking such terrific questions and we have many more questions in queue and so I do want to address those of you those of you who still have questions to ask and um, and didn't get a chance to ask them um, first of all I want to acknowledge that those of you who asked a question those of you who um, are waiting to get a have, have a question in queue but didn't get to ask it and those of you who are thinking of a question 
please all of you go back to your treating healthcare team as a number of our speakers have said frequently because they know you the best. They know all about your situation and we hope what you've learned today you'll take back to your treating healthcare team and see how it applies to you and your situation. That's very important that you each do that. The other thing um, is that um, as you can learn from today's program, all questions are, are wonderful and important to ask. So if you have a question, ask your healthcare team. That's really important. And your healthcare team consists of many different people in addition to your physician, the oncology nurse, oncology social worker, patient navigator, financial uh, associate, all these people who can assist you with your um, questions and concerns that you may have. Um, most importantly, as we conclude the program today, I would not want any one of you to feel you're alone in coping with follicular lymphoma or any type of cancer. I'd like you to know that you're now part of a community of support. There are lots of resources out there in addition to your healthcare team, of course, your healthcare team to start with, and then you certainly can contact Cancer Care. And then there are many other organizations that specialize in blood cancers that also will be a great resource to you and are very credible. We very much recommend that if you're going to go somewhere, be sure it's a recommended site, which means that they are quite reputable, like the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, um, Lymphoma Research Foundation. These are very well-known organizations, and I definitely would want to, we'll include those in the list of resources for you to check, but please don't go on to some, uh, something that isn't really carefully monitored. That means that the information is updated practically on a regular basis, sometimes um, many times per year in that same month. Be sure you're, you're, and also your healthcare team, of course, they're the best ones to tell you about your situation. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a good day.